today's scripture reading is from Matthews chapter 6, verse 9 through 15. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good afternoon. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic. Uh, the video that we just saw was actually shown at uh, PCA's, uh, our denomination PCA's General Assembly um, last month, and uh, it was, uh, I think, 1,500 people there saw it, um, and our, our church was featured as a, as a church that is trying to uh, get more involved in the right way in overseas missions. So uh, for about two days after they showed the video, people kept coming up to Aaron and saying, wow, it's amazing what's going on in your church. And uh, to be honest, I, I, I felt very proud of our church and very excited for what God is doing here and hopeful for the future. If, if uh, short-term missions is something that, that, that you want to get involved in and you want to experience for yourself, I really encourage you to, to sign up for our upcoming trip in February. I think it would be a great way for us to get involved and continue um, to participate in what God is doing globally. Um, for today, we continue on in our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. And we've been saying that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us how we are to pray. It's not a mantra that we memorize and that we're meant to recite, but Jesus is giving us a guide or a pattern for prayer. So in the past few weeks, we've explored how we pray, first and foremost, to a loving Father. But he's not just any father. He is our father in heaven. So we're, we're to begin this prayer by considering and dwelling upon his holiness. We, we ask God to hallow his name in our hearts. But God is not just a loving father. He is also a great king who brings his kingdom. And in prayer, we submit ourselves to that kingdom and to his will. We're not to use prayer, as we often do, to try to enforce our own will or to try to push our own agenda, but rather prayer is an expression of submission, of our will to the will of our Heavenly Father. And last week we explored, give us today our daily bread. And we said that prayer, it's not only submission to God, but it's also dependence upon God, who is the provider and the sustainer of life. Today we come to the petition, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And what do we pray when we pray this petition? Well, three things this petition asks you to consider. First, consider your debt. Next, come to Jesus. And third, cancel the debts of others. Three very simple things. But if, if you think about it, Three really impossible things for us to do on our own, which is why we need to pray this petition every single day. 
Consider your debt, come to Jesus, and cancel the debts of others. First, consider our debt. We have to do this. If before we ask God to forgive us our debts, we have to first understand and know what they are. Today is the sixth sermon in this series. And we've been saying in this series that all of the petitions are related to one another. They kind of flow out from each other. The order kind of matters. And this begs the question then, why does repentance happen in the middle of the prayer and not at the very beginning? Doesn't it make more sense that repentance happened at the very top? If I were to punch you in the nose, and in our very next conversation, I, I open by saying nice things about you, I, I ask you for my daily bread, wouldn't that be awkward? Wouldn't that be strange? You'd be thinking the whole time, what about my nose? Or, or maybe it's just awkward to address something like that right from the top. So are all of the petitions that come before, hallowed be your name, give us today our daily bread, are those kind of um, small talk before we finally get to the elephant in the room? You know, you, you ask about family, you talk about the game last night, and you finally get to asking for forgiveness. I don't think so. The reason why Jesus has us first address the Father, ask him to hallow his name, submit ourselves to his lordship and his will and his kingship, and then declare our dependence upon his provision, it's because he wants us to view sin as relational, not transactional. Relational, not transactional. This is why sin here is presented as debt. When we think of sin, don't our minds immediately go to specific acts? Lying, stealing, cheating, hurting. But when we think of debt, we're, we're kind of forced to consider the person that we are indebted to. If sin is merely an infraction of rules, then you know what? It, it doesn't seem that bad. If we view the act itself without considering who we sin against, we don't truly understand the gravity of sin. Think of the very first sin that ever happened. God, God doesn't tell Adam and Eve, um, Adam, Eve, don't kill each other. That's not, that's not the prohibition. He doesn't put other couples in the garden and say, Adam and Eve, no hanky-panky with other people, okay? That's not what happens. What, what is the prohibition? Don't eat fruit. Fruit, eating fruit. It, in and of itself, it is, it is not evil. The action itself, it's not bad. It's eating fruit. But the sin is horrific because it is sin against a perfect and a loving God, sin is deeply relational. What are, quote-unquote, minor sins? You know, the sins that are not that big a deal. This, the sins we commit that we don't spend too much time repenting about. There are white lies here and there. Breaking the speed limit or Amazon sends you an extra item and you don't say anything. You ever buy an outfit, wear it, and then return it? I mean, these aren't big deals to us because we think, who's it hurting? 
It's not really hurting Amazon. They're a trillion-dollar company. No one died when I sped. The outfit, it wasn't damaged. And what are the really bad sins? The ones where someone is hurt. Murder, adultery, stealing from the poor, etc. The Lord's Prayer, it describes sin as debt because we are to view all of sin in light of the one to whom debt is due, God. All of sin, from the smallest to the biggest sin, it is heinous, horrific, not because of the nature of the act, but because it is cosmic rebellion against an infinite and loving God. In Psalm 51, we have King David's famous prayer of repentance, probably the most famous prayer of repentance in the Bible. David was guilty of a lot of things. He was guilty of stealing another man's wife, impregnating her, and then having her husband, one of his most loyal men, killed to cover up his crimes. And this prayer doesn't happen until months after the crimes are committed. And what brings David to this point of anguish and remorse? Well, it's, it's not the pain that he caused Bathsheba or, or even the injustice against Uriah, her husband. David says in verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. The heinousness of sin, it lies in the one against whom sin is ultimately committed, namely God himself. You know, in Mark chapter 10, we see the famous encounter between Jesus and a rich young man. This young man, he comes to Jesus and he is full of grand gestures. He's very extra in many ways. He, he does something respected men like him never did. He runs, Mark tells us, that he runs up to Jesus and he kneels before him and he honors Jesus by calling him good teacher. So polite, so respectful. And Jesus' disciples, they must have been impressed because this was a very, very wealthy and respected man. What an honor this is. But as he begins talking, it becomes very clear that he simply doesn't get it. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, his question doesn't really make sense. If you were there, you surely would have spoken up and said, sir, when you inherit something, you don't do anything. A person dies and you receive an inheritance. But, but Jesus kind of humors him and he responds, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, don't murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Jesus, he lists the commandments. And he tells the young man, all right, you want the answer? You need to be really, really good. How does the young man respond to Jesus? He says, oh, well, teacher, all of these I've kept since my youth. Jesus had just told the young man, only God is good, and two seconds later, the rich young man says, me too. He doesn't see it. 
He, he's viewing morality from a transactional works perspective. Obey these commandments. Do these good acts. Avoid sin and you are good. Jesus corrects him and says, well, you lack one thing still. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. What Jesus is saying here is this. Goodness, it's not merely transactional. It is relational. Come, follow me. This is why Jesus doesn't get to repentance in the Lord's Prayer until we have first deeply prayed through the great and holy and loving God. When we consider who God is, and then look at our sin, it becomes entirely relational, not transactional. Can I ask you a question? Who is the worst sinner you know? I know some of you are thinking, probably Jennifer, but Grace can have her moments. You know what, if the answer is not yourself, then you haven't truly considered your sin from a relational perspective. If your mind immediately goes to perpetrators of genocide, mass shooters, child rapists, then you're still looking at morality from a works perspective. You know, when I say I am the worst sinner I know, I'm not saying I've committed the most heinous crimes of anyone I know. But what I am saying is this, based on my privilege, my relationship with God, my loving relationship with him, all the grace, all the mercy, all the love that he has shown me and I still sin against him, That is much worse than someone who doesn't know God is radicalized on the internet and then shoots up a Walmart. My sin is a greater betrayal of my loving Savior than anyone who acts in ignorance of his love and mercy. You know, if if you were to come up to me and, and tell me that you hate me, that might sting a bit. I might be sad for a few moments, but if my wife and kids say that to me, it is a different thing entirely. When you, if you are a Christian, sin against your loving father, it is much worse than someone who sins who is not in relationship with him, who has no relationship with him, who is not adopted as his child. The rich young ruler, the rich young man, he he misses the evil of his sin entirely. But you know what he also misses? He also misses the evil of his righteousness. When Jesus tells him, you lack one thing, go sell everything, give it to the poor, and then come follow me, the rich young man is thinking, that's not one thing. (laughs) That's everything. What Jesus is telling him is this, your righteousness is not enough. 
even your righteousness fall short. Don't we tend to think that our righteousness makes us right with God? So if you have a really good week where you don't sin any of the really big sins, you you spend time reading the Bible, you spend time in prayer, and then you feel more right with God compared to the week before when you struggled with sin, when you didn't pray, when you didn't read the Bible. But do you realize that even your best works are filthy rags? What you think is so good and right before God, the best things you have to offer God are objectively awful. You know, my son Andy, he brings home arts and crafts projects from school almost every day now. And when he gives them to me, he acts like they belong in the mat. He's like, oh, be careful, don't bend it. But objectively, they suck. (laughs) But what do I do? I don't roll my eyes. I I try to be a good father. I, I gingerly and carefully inspect it, and I tell him, you didn't do this. There's no way you did this. Your teacher did this for you. No, you didn't do this. This is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And then he kind of struts away with a big smile on his face, and then I take it and throw it in the trash. (laughs) We think that what we bring to God is so good and so beautiful and so valuable, but our best works, objectively, they are filthy rags before God. They have no value. John Calvin wrote that even our tears of repentance are stained with sin in our most holy moments before God. We fall woefully short. You know, when we first look to God in all of his purity, holiness, splendor, majesty, and love, and then we look to our sins and even our sinful righteousness, we realize that our debt is far, far, far greater than we ever imagined. And as we come to repentance, we should loathe, we should hate our sin because God hates our sin. It it should feel like poison that you just want to suck out of your body as fast as you can. Get this as far away from me as possible. Do you hate your sin? Do you want to be free from it desperately? Do you you pray earnestly for forgiveness and freedom from sin? There's a famous story of Jonathan Edwards who was a great American preacher during the Great Awakening. He was leading a prayer meeting of 800 men. The women were gathering in a separate meeting. And a woman wrote a note to Edwards during this meeting. And she wrote in the note that her husband had, because of sin and spiritual pride, become cruel, harsh, and and insensitive to his family. And she asked him, will you lead a prayer for him so that he would repent? 
And as Jonathan Edwards was reading the note, he, and he was thinking about who was writing it, he realized that the husband was in the prayer meeting. So he read the note out loud to 800 men. And afterwards, he, he made the awful request. He said this, looking right at him. If you know who you are, would you raise your hand and let us pray for you? And at that moment, 300 men raised their hands. When the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts, we long to confess. We long to come to God. We pray earnestly, please forgive us our debts. There's a quote on the first page of your bulletin. This is from a a sermon called Repentance That Sings by Brian Chappell. And he says this, Repentance is not turning from bad works to better works. Our best works are still filth before God. Repentance is only a turning from our works to God's work alone. Repentance is not a doing, but a depending. Repentance is not just a loathing of sin nor even a longing for its cure, but a loving of the Savior. I love that. You know, Jesus tells the rich young man, come follow me. Verse 22 of Mark 10. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus invites the man, come, follow me, but he doesn't. It's interesting because at the beginning of the encounter, this man runs to Jesus excited. But now his face falls and he walks away sad. Why? I mean, he still had his great wealth. He still had the respect of his peers. He had the whole world. But I'm guessing that he had deep down a profound sense that something huge in his life was missing. And he just couldn't get it. You know, Jesus extends the same invitation to you. Come, follow me. Give up everything else that cannot satisfy. Come to me. You know, Jesus doesn't promise you material wealth. He doesn't promise you health. He doesn't promise you career advancement or a fulfilling romantic relationship. But he promises you something better. Himself. Come follow me. Well, where is he going? Jesus says a a few verses right after this encounter. Clear as crystal. We are going to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus goes to the cross to cover our debts. It costs us nothing, but it costs Jesus everything. And even though we follow him to Jerusalem and we give up everything for him, it's nothing compared to what he gives to us. Jesus says, 
in, Matthew, uh, in Mark 10. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, fathers, children, and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus says, in this present age, now, it's not just pie in the sky, it's not just suffer now, get heaven later, Jesus says, you get a hundredfold of everything you give up now. You get all of Jesus, God himself, now. You know, my, my favorite part of the rich young man's encounter with Jesus, it's verse 21. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus knew the worst about him, and he loved him. And I want to say this, Jesus knows the worst about you. He knows the totality of your debt to the penny. And he looks at you, and he loves you. This is what you get when you come to Jesus. You know, and when we love Jesus, we'll go anywhere with him, won't we? I remember my first date with my wife, Jeannie. We just walked through downtown L.A. for hours just talking. I'm sure it was beautiful when we were by the opera house or the concert hall, but it didn't matter where we were. It, it could have been Skid Row and I wouldn't have cared because I was with her. The man walks away sad, but you come to Jesus. Repentance, it, it is full of remorse and pain, but it is ultimately delight, joy, singing, freedom, life. You know, in, in 2014, I got the call that you don't ever want to get. I got the news that my mom was diagnosed with cancer, and it was pretty bad. It, had, it began in her colon and by then, it had already spread to her liver and lungs, and the doctors were giving her about eight to ten months to live. And I remember hanging up the phone, and I was holding my, my newborn baby, Andy, at the time, and I, I hugged him harder than I ever hugged him before, and I wept. I prayed like I've never prayed before. And in the months that followed, through multiple surgeries, chemotherapy, radiation, and then clinical trials, we prayed desperately. And then two and a half years later, we got the news. The latest scans have come back clean. The cancer is gone. I heard that news, and I screamed with joy. My tears of mourning gone, now tears of joy flowing down my face. The weight was lifted. The shadow of death gone. Instead, singing, delight, freedom. You know, repentance is even better than that. When we truly consider our debt, and then we come to the Jesus who loves us, the cancer is gone. 
The debt is paid. Every cent of it, every stain removed. You are free from your sin. The shadow of death is gone. No more shame. No more guilt. You are forgiven. No matter what you've done, no matter how ugly your past is, no matter how much of a wreck you've made of your life, no matter who you've hurt, your debt is paid. Singing, delight, freedom. This is what repentance sounds like. And when it happens, when it truly happens, it is impossible not to cancel the debts that are owed to you. Because in your mind, your debt is so much bigger than anything anyone else could have done to you. You know, in Matthew 18, Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. This king forgives a servant's obscene debt. And I'm not exaggerating because I sat down and I did the math, the conversion. Jesus says that the debt is equivalent to about $50 billion. <laughs> and he is free from this crazy debt. And then he immediately goes and he tries to force someone to pay him back a $5,000 loan. Jesus says, this is, this is total nonsense. If you cannot forgive someone for something they've done against you, the reason for that is you have not truly considered the debt that you've been forgiven. And the Jesus who loves you this is why Jesus revisits forgiveness after he teaches the Lord's Prayer. He gives the Lord's Prayer and he kind of circles back and does one more lap around forgiveness. Here's what he says in verse 14. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Here's what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that your forgiveness is contingent on you forgiving others, but what he is saying is that it is a natural consequence of you being forgiven. This is why we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's not a separate transaction. It's one and the same. Your inability to forgive others, it's a sign that maybe you haven't truly repented. And that's not to minimize what others have done to you. I'm sure many of us in this room have been hurt in profound ways. But we, we just said that repentance, it's singing. It's delight. But when you refuse to forgive someone else, it's anything but that. It's bitterness. It's, it's anger. It's, it's gritting your teeth. It's being stubborn. There's a, the, the last quote on the first page of your bulletin. Here's what it says. Trevin Wax says, It does not help you to have one artery clear for blood to come rushing to your heart if the artery going out from your heart is blocked. A heart attack is still inevitable. You cannot stay alive by simply taking in one big breath of air and refusing to exhale. 
You cannot climb a tree and expect to remain up high if you cut off the branch you're sitting on. Forgiveness works the same way. You cannot expect to receive God's forgiveness unless you are an open vessel through which his mercy can flow on out to others. A blocked artery that refuses to allow blood to be pumped through will only cause heart failure. If we think we have accepted God's forgiveness but are not forgiving others their debts, spiritually we are as good as dead. Is there someone that you cannot forgive? What do you do? Don't you end up dwelling on what that person did to you? The more you think about it, the angrier you get, you hold on to it, you refuse to let it go. How could she do that to me? How dare they say that about me? That is poison for your soul. How do you cancel the debt? Well, it's not by thinking long and hard about it and finally coming to a place where you can let it go. Good luck with that. Here's how you do it. You think about the $50 million debt that you've been forgiven. $50 billion, I'm sorry. And then compare this debt to that. Paul Tripp says this, no one gives grace better than the one who has received it the most. How much grace have you received? And I want to say this, if you have a hard time forgiving others, then you need to pray this petition. You know, the three points I talked about today, considering your debt, coming to Jesus, canceling the debts of others, these are not things that we can do on our own. These are things that God has to accomplish in our hearts. So we pray and we ask him to do it. We ask for his help. We ask him, melt my heart with your love so that your grace can change my heart and flow out of me to others. This is what we ask when we pray Forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. Will you pray this prayer with me now?